0: So anyway, we've come on that topic of, is what the Bible intended to communicate actually being represented by the teachers who are communicating it, and Paul offers a challenge to Timothy, his uh, young apprentice, who's the pastor at the Church of Ephesus around this topic, and that's what we're going to look at uh, today. Working things out. I've entitled this message, Recovering a Holy Intolerance, from 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7. When you... uh, choose to be a part of Marine Covenant Church, you're part of a church that's pretty well connected and emotionally attached part of a denomination, and there is some risk. It's, it's sort of a dangerous church, a dangerous uh, a choice in some ways to choose to be part of a covenant church because one of the hallmark beliefs, uh, one of the things that's a defining belief of a covenant church and of our denomination, even though the churches are very different wherever you go, uh, it's not going to be the same liturgy, it'll feel a little different Um, In the churches, but one of the things that's always the same is that we're committed within the congregation, theological diversity within the limits of orthodoxy. So we're not, we're by design and on purpose, not a congregation or we're not a a family of congregations that are saying, here's what we believe about the end times, here's what we believe about uh, uh, spiritual gifts, here's what we believe about this, here's our favorite political party, and everybody has to kind of go along with all that. And if you're too far away from any of that, you're probably not going to feel comfortable here. We're not like that. We're on purpose saying, well, within these limits of the non-negotiables for all Christians, things like authority of Scripture, the need for Jesus as Savior, the divinity of Christ, there are a handful of beliefs that all Christians need to uh, agree with in order to really be apostolic and uh, Christian. We're saying within that, we love the diversity in our church. And that's a little bit dangerous. In fact, sometimes it can make you feel as though this is part of the risk. Sometimes that commitment can make it feel as though we're trying to be a church that has no theological sidelines at all. Could you imagine trying to play a football game with no boundaries? No sideline, no out of bounds, no end zone, just go ahead and score. It would be chaos, it would be bedlam, and sometimes it feels when you're in a covenant church as though we're trying to do Christianity with no sidelines. That might be the most often asked question I get uh, when it or challenge, especially when people are uncomfortable that come and ask about our church. Do you are you one of those churches that just believes anything? You're going to believe anything just so you can f- fill up the room? It sounds like you need way more uh, specificity than you have. And that's part of the risk. It's a dangerous choice to be part of a covenant church. Um, and even some of our own most well-known theologians, the theologians in our movement, have recognized this and admitted admitted it. In fact, I think their recognition of it, their self-awareness, and their honest, almost potentially incriminating statements about that reveal a huge desire for truth, for not misrepresenting Scripture, sort of being self-aware and saying this is one of the things we have to watch out for. In the big old thick doorstop book that that we're supposed to read when we get our education uh, with the covenant called By One Spirit, did you read the thick version, Ben? Of course, Ben's a historian, so he would have read the thick version. I read the cliff notes and uh, squeak through the test. But one of the things that Carl Olson who wrote that, he's gone now but he was he's one of our main theologians, in fact probably our main theologian of modern times anyway in our movement. He wrote this. He said that our risk is that we sometimes treat our loyal heretics because we're about community we're about hey love the people let's make room for as many people as possible as we journey toward christ which is a good thing right it's one of the reasons so many people come and say i just feel such warmth you know i feel like i can be a part of your church i feel the love Uh, even folks who aren't followers of christ yet who would have drastically different positions on some issues from me or other leaders or maybe even some of you say yeah but i still kind of want to come there and hear what you guys have to offer uh Olson says, Our risk is that we sometimes treat our loyal heretics, our relationally astute heretics, much better than we treat our more separatistic but also more orthodox dissidents. That's one of our risks, he said, when you're about community and connection uh, and making space for everybody. In an unpublished lecture, to the International Federation of Free Evangelical Churches in 1971, Olson said, in the free church, like, uh, I think that's the capital F, not the Evangelical Free Church, but any church that would be a free church, a non-state church. He may have been talking about the Evangelical Free Church, but I don't think so. In the free church, one is likely to be in trouble for believing wrongly, he said but not in the covenant church. In the covenant church, one is more likely to be in trouble for behaving badly toward others. So he is admitting the danger when it comes to being careful about what we hear Scripture saying, how we teach it, what we believe and how we teach it. He's admitting that when you're a church that's about connection and relationship and trying to maximize people's sense of inclusion but still hold to the non-negotiables, there is a danger there and you've got to be aware of it. So the question that I want to ask and address today from this text in First Timothy is this. How does a church like ours who's in, who's in alignment with those values that I've just shared make sure that we're staying on track with what we teach? How do we make sure that we're not so committed to inclusion and relationship and ma- giving people the freedom to take a journey without pretense and not pretending they're somebody they're not, or having to perform like this or like this or like this before they can feel like they're part of the community? How do we protect that on the one hand and truth on the other? How in a church community that really does love people do we mitigate the risks of misrepresenting what the Bible teaches, especially when what it teaches is difficult for those people that we love? that are real true friends of ours. How do we develop and protect a holy intolerance for violating Scripture while not stooping so low that we'll become willing to use that very same Scripture to violate people? Do you understand the tension of the question? Because we don't want to compromise either one. We're relational. We're connectional. We love it when people who disagree uh, with some of the positions we hold as a church Want to be part of us because they're wonderful friends, and we actually learn from them, and we're crafted through God by God through them. But we want to still tell truth as we understand it from Scripture. And Paul and Timothy were dealing with that very challenge in the text that I'm about to read now. Would you stand with me as we read uh, this text for today? First Timothy chapter one, verses three through seven, and you pick up what they're dealing with in the text. So Paul says to Timothy, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay here in Ephesus so that you may command certain persons not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogy. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. 1 Timothy 1. May God add his blessing to his holy word, his fully inspired message to us. Go ahead and take your seats. So that question lingers. How in the world would your community that wants to be inclusive and relate and actually loves people. Uh, how can you hold to that without uh, letting that value infringe upon the equal value of wanting to say, well, here's what Scripture really says, and here's what God's heart really is, and let's let's uh, deal with it together. How do you make that work? Some of the instruction that Paul gives is this, and I'm just going to pull a couple of principles out from those verses and let them uh, simmer with us. Here's the first one you You in all of our interpretations and our teachings, we need to learn to value substance over novelty, value substance over the desire to find something new and hidden and creative, uh, some way of interpreting or presenting a text that's never been in a way that you've never heard it that way before. We value substance over novelty. And I hope you understand just how difficult that is these days. We live in a culture that values celebrity over character. You would much rather, not you, most people would rather have, most Christians would rather have us arrange for a celebrity to come and speak to you here today than a person of true character. We value celebrity over character. That's just everywhere, left to right in our community. And it's in the church, too. We have to admit it. We have to be aware of it so that we can keep addressing it. Parallel to that, we will value, we we have a tendency to value novelty or creativity over substance in the teachings that we hear, in the teachings that we prefer. Paul's saying to Timothy, man, don't let that happen. Value substance over novelty, That's very important to Paul. First of all, let's look at what was actually going on in this church in Ephesus. In verse 6, you see Paul say, some have departed from these these teachings, pure teachings, pure faith, and have turned to meaningless chatter or meaningless talk. He gives other inferences of what's actually going on in the first few verses of this section. Uh, It's false doctrines, false teachings, and then he sort of reveals what it looked like. They're devoting themselves to myths, to endless genealogies, uh, to controversial speculations, rather than to advancing God's work. There was a school of thought, there was a tendency in that day to take the Old Testament law and misapply it, misuse it, misinterpret it, and teach it sort of in a crooked fashion. And especially when it came to some of the lists of ge- the gene- genealogical lists. So-and-so begot so-and-so, and so-and-so begot so-and-so. And that can get rather boring. Have you read those genealogies? They're actually profound, but they can get a little boring. And there was this this movement, this, this ability, uh, this fascination with reading things into those genealogies. Allegorizing the genealogy. So you'd see this particular name, and then with no study, no backup, nothing to prove it, just a creative sense, uh, a meaning would be assigned to that particular name. And so you would have little discussion groups that would sit down and talk about what that name, name might have meant and what that name might have meant and what some of the significance is to this and that. And they would end up chasing their tails in theological discussion that was based on nothing, pure conjecture driven by an appreciation for and a hunger for something novel instead of something consistent uh, and a little bit less exciting. And Paul is saying, instruct certain people to knock that off. That's going nowhere. And I love the fact that Paul is interesting to me. He doesn't say, look, go back there, Timothy, and correct what was taught. Go teach the right thing. He says, go back there and locate the folks who are doing the bad teaching and address them. It's really aggressive language, actually. The best translation I can figure out uh, with uh, as I urged you when we went to Macedonia, that verb to urge, it's it's a word that could be translated as I called you out. It's a very strong urging. It's really powerful language. In fact, all the etymology of the word is two words, to, and the word "around" or "from" uh, and and to call out. So I called you around, and I mean I intensified the sense of calling. I called you out to do this, Timothy. There was no question that I was challenging you. You have to get this done. Paul feels real passionately about this correction and not letting this stuff happen. He feels so strong about that, strongly about it, that in verse twenty he names some of the very people that are doing the false teaching leaves it sort of general and generic at first, and then he names at least a couple of them later in verse 20. There may have been more. He says, go to these specific men, stay on top of them, keep instructing them to stop teaching things that aren't true, that would not be consistent with the values of Scripture. And then in verse 7, he makes a pretty uh, amazing statement. It sounds a little bit cynical. I'm not sure it would translate that way in his original letter. But to us, it sounds a little bit cynical. I suspect that there was a bit of frustration in it on his part. I've got to tell you before I jump into this point, and I'm still talking about that first principle, and I'm just about to finish it, uh, of valuing substance over novelty. novelty, But it would be only fair if I It's not fair if I don't tell you. This is a hobby horse of mine, so I may overstate it. Can you forgive me for that ahead of time? Thank you. Paul implies or outright states or supports the importance of formal theological education for people who are daring to present Scripture. He says they want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about. The things they so confidently affirm, they haven't got a clue. Of what they're talking about. And the importance in that statement of being willing to take the time to learn so that you can at least minimize the times that you're speaking rather loudly about something over which you have no clue, about which you have no clue at all. James 3. Partners with Paul in this. James 3, you know that what James 3 said. He says, listen, you want to be teachers? James 3, 1 says, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers and sisters, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Every single word that comes out of the mouth of a teacher of Scripture, that teacher is held accountable for those words by God. It ought to be that if somebody wants to be a teacher of Scripture, God has to reach down from heaven and grab you by the back of the collar and force you to stand in front of a podium. It ought to be that we're begging God regularly to let us off the hook because the risks are just too high. And here you have these people that are called false teachers talking confidently about things and they don't know what they're talking about because they haven't taken the time to learn what they're talking about. That doesn't mean that, I mean, going a seminary or having formal theological education or even significant informal theological education does not guarantee against false teaching. But the disregard for that training when it's available does guarantee trouble. And it, it concerns me, here's my hobby horse, it concerns me, it seems to me that the theological aberrations are increasing these days and becoming more refined uh, much more crafty. Everything's much more nuanced than it ever was before. While a willingness to involve oneself in or even appreciation for formal theological education in the churches is decreasing, and the churches are going along with it. It ought to be just the opposite. People, we had, there's, there's this rule that uh, we talk about sometimes as preacher. We joke Preachers, we joke about it, we laugh about it. Uh, it's really not funny at all. You may have heard it. Like if there's a point that you're trying to make and you're not quite sure of it in a sermon, you know what we're told? Speak it more loudly. Just do it louder and make it more forceful. Not according to Paul. I, um, one of my favorite men uh, is someone that I met at this church. He's, he's one of the best men I think I've ever met all my life and then one of the best men I ever will meet. There are a handful of guys I could say that about in this church, but one of them is a guy named Gene Sage. Some of you know who Gene Sage is. Gene Sage has for a while been teaching a class that meets during this hour across the way. I love Gene Sage. I think he's, well, I can't say enough about him. I was over their house one time taking something over and just visiting. I walk in to their living room and what do you think Gene Sage is? This was like a Wednesday or something. What do you think Gene's dining room table looked like in preparation for the class he's teaching? Right now they're in 1 Corinthians and they're going slowly and carefully through 1 Corinthians. Covered with books, study material everywhere. I would have thought, Gene, are you in are you in graduate school or something because I look at some of the authors and some of the helps he's using and the commentaries and the books on the language and the, and the authors he's reading, man, it was, it was heavy, heavy stuff. Because he has such a high respect for what his task is and such a high level of love for the people who are trusting him with what he brings that he goes out of his way to make sure it's a very rare thing that he teaches something from the Bible when he doesn't know what he's talking about. So Paul really uh, explodes this idea that Education is not at all important. The Holy Spirit can speak to a teacher who hasn't been formally trained, but we need to remember that that's exception, not the rule. That the Holy Spirit's best tool in a Bible teacher is that teacher's brain, and basic logic, and a willingness to invest him or herself in learning what it is they're supposed to be talking about. So, all of that to remind one of the ways that we can protect against being so concerned with loving people that we forget to tell them the truth, value substance over novelty. And then Paul also includes another principle that's helpful for us. This is one that uh, can kind of knock us on our heels. If you're my age uh, or older and you've grown up in the church, you've seen what I'm talking about here. The second principle is this, to value action over information. I grew up, in a Christian context, where the more you knew about the Bible, and the more you could recite verses, and especially if um, if somebody could recite a verse to you, and you could give them the address for the verse, oh, that's that, that's Romans two three. Uh, the information you had about the Bible, the more you could do that, the more spiritually adept you were, the more spiritually mature you were, because information was king. Paul is saying. To have biblical information that has as its goal the acquisition and recitation, you know, the reciting of information that has as its goal, that's heresy, that's considered false teaching. Look at what he says in the middle of this text. He says they devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, just over and over. Such things promote, or such things has as their outcome, as their goal, controversial speculations rather than. Advancing God's work, which is by faith. He says the goal of this command, the goal of true teaching, is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So in Ephesus, they were doing what what these teachers were doing was teaching in such a way that they could maybe put together a little discussion group, and they would teach about the genealogies, and then you would bounce your idea of what this means off of somebody else. They would bounce their idea off of you of what it means, and that's all they ever did. I was in a coffee shop the other day at a conference, and I heard I overheard a, a group of. Christian men, and I'm sure there's a lot more to their lives than this, but it was interesting to me that while I was studying this very point, um, they're kind of talking loud and I can hear what they're doing, and they're studying Scripture, but their, their conversations had very little, if anything, to do with what difference that made in the way they were going to live and what they were going to do about what they were reading. All their conversa- conversations had to do with their opinions about what they meant, that meant. And then, of course, they slid into the obligatory Um, bashing of our president and the political conversation and what's wrong with the economy. Nothing that actually put footprints on anything was discussed in this group. And if we're not careful as Christians, that can be enough for us. Chasing our tails, as I said, theologically and learning more stuff, talking about more stuff and calling it orthodox. It is not orthodox. That's never what good solid biblical instruction has In mind. The goal of good, solid biblical instruction, of sound teaching, Paul says, is measurable love. Loving and relevant involvement in humanity's quest for a relationship with God and a world that reflects God. You hear that? That's the goal of clear biblical, reliable biblical teaching, not simply the acquisition of theological data. You value action over information. It's not that information isn't valuable. It's just that it's wasted if it doesn't result in action. Every single verse between the covers of Scripture is about getting out and doing something, showing love. It should have a result someplace. It should change the world. It should affect the world. It should reach down into a cave where little children, who are not valued any less by their parents than our own children, are valued by us When they were coming down the hallways, their, their precious faces just like that. Children that were never intended to satisfy the broken desires of really, really broken people sexually. Christian teaching results in Christians who learn, gather information, and that information wakes them up at night. And they reach their hand into tunnels like the one you saw on the video. And they help people out of whatever it is that's enslaved them measurable love. And if we ever if we ever slide to the place where knowing bible stuff equals knowing the author of the bible where knowing biblical theological information is how we measure spiritual maturity we have slid right into heresy a functional heresy we value action over information, even though we value information. Does it make sense? It's one of the things Paul is trying. I, I, that's what Gary Haugen must have experienced when he grew up in the church that we were in. Uh, it's been overstated here. I was not Gary's youth pastor. I was one of the relatively unknown youth ministry interns when Gary was in our youth group, but I did get to meet with him. He's got this great family that, that I really love and um, we're still we're still friends. But when Gary started IJM, I rather imagine it, it must have come out, at least in part, out of his memory of the good, solid teaching he received, his experience of what he saw when he was working for uh, the government, what in Rwanda, um, and some of the, the terrible things he saw, and then the collision of these values, We said, what I've learned must result in some kind of a change that represents the agenda of God for the world. It has to work. What else? What's it worth if it doesn't? And IJM came out of that sort of uh, conviction. So those are the two principles that I offer today in response to that first question uh, that I asked about, man, how how do you make sure you're teaching what's true? Especially when... The things you're teaching might make life more difficult or even put at risk the people you love and their willingness to stay connected on this journey together. You value substance over novelty. You value action over information. And if we do that, probably probably be okay. Those are some of the things that Paul teaches uh, to Timothy. I, I love the way James expresses what Paul is here uh, instructing In just a few verses, James exemplifies both of these values, the value of substance and the value of action. I'll just read a few verses, but look for these things in what James writes. Well, in James chapter 2, you're going to see a substantial, well-thought-out, theologically astute argument that results in action. That's what he's arguing for. He says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, or being oppressed by somebody smarter than them, richer than them, and more powerful than them, and used for terrible, terrible things. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. Do you see the substance that's in that argument and the value for action that comes out of the biblical arguments he's offering? But someone may say, you have faith and I have works. His response is, show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. It's not one or the other, James is saying. You believe that God is one God, that's theologically accurate. We could sit and talk about that for hours and theologians could do that. You do well, he says, but the demons also believe that, and they shudder. Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, James says, that faith without works is useless, substance and action? How, in a church community that really does love people, do we mitigate the risk of misrepresenting what the Bible teaches, especially when what it teaches is difficult for those very people we love who are going to hear that in the conversation. How do we redirect our intolerance, develop a holy intolerance for violating scripture while not stooping so low that we become willing to use that very same scripture to violate people? What a wonderful tension we're invited to live into. We have seen a great example of just that through what our friend Melissa showed us, I think, where the truth of Scripture informed caring minds and good hearts. God's hunger for justice, his disgust with injustice and oppression, where do you think folks learned that? From the Bible. But they took that. They said, this is an information that we're just supposed to have so that we can maybe teach it to someone else and they can teach it to someone else. This is about action, too. We've seen a wonderful example of that with IJM. May we live in to the example we've seen.